welcome to this episode of 10,000 Posts. It's the show about how everything is posting. Uh, my name is Hussein. Uh, Phoebe's not with us again. Uh, she is still on holiday. Uh, I am, I'm not jealous at all. I'm actually fine about that. It's been raining all the time. Uh, she's somewhere really sunny. Uh, everything's okay, though. Uh, and this week we have with us, uh, I, I, I feel like you've come on a few times, so I don't know at what point you are basically like a sort of cast <laughs> member, but we are joined by uh, Paris Marks. Uh, you will know of Paris as host of Tech Won't Save Us. You may have read their book, Road to Nowhere. It was very, very good. We did an episode on it. And uh, Paris has also written a bunch of very interesting stuff, uh, most recently for Disconnect. And we are going to talk about one of their Disconnect articles uh, on this episode. It is about AI and how it restricts us all. Paris, how's it going? Yeah, it's going uh, pretty well. Excited to be back on the show to talk about posting. As always, I feel like I've been trying to like post a bit less lately, uh, but you know, it's hard to resist. Everyone yeah. has, yeah. Dude, it's hard. It's hard to do this show these days because when you talk to people, they're like, "Yep, yeah, we're posting less, <laughs> and we're paying less attention to the yeah. posts," um, which makes it which makes doing a show about posting really difficult <laughs> and very very challenging because the people who are posting are the worst people in the world and you don't want them to be on your show. Yeah. Um, I, I just feel a resistance to, uh, to having to X now, you know, uh, I, I don't like to do that as much as I enjoyed tweeting. So, and, and, you know, no. uh, people post on blue sky and Mastodon and stuff, but it's not the same. So <laughs> it's not the same. I've tried like threads a little bit. Oh, I um, hated that one, but it's just, it just doesn't hit the same. It does. It just doesn't hit the same. And I, and I'm wondering whether it's just like, um, and maybe, you know, this, this might just be like a subject for the future or like a theme for the future. Um, but I think even when we started this show, there was this sort of idea that like, oh, everyone's sort of posting through it in some way. And even though we're sort of, even though we acknowledge that posting isn't as fun as it used to be, or at least it wasn't as fun as it used to be, it was still kind of happening. And there was still like enough interesting stuff and phenomena that was happening kind of organically, uh, or kind of within conflict with each other, which made it interesting to observe. Whereas now I'm sure like this stuff does happen, but it's so difficult to find it um, in the midst of all the sort of like generated shit that now just exists on pretty much every major social platform. I think even like Instagram and stuff, like it's not a particularly great place to be looking for things. TikTok, very similar. Um, you can actually get into this in, some, in, in parts of your article, and I'd love to sort of explore that when we get to that sure. point. I thought a good beginning part of this, though, would be something that came up on my radar uh, today on our beloved site, x.com, uh, which is also twitter.com, according to the URL, because the engineers at x are doing really well. <laughs> have, you, have you noticed that if you try to retweet something or like repost a video and you use the link instead of like just clicking like the button in the app to do it, if you use the x.com link, it doesn't work? you need to use the twitter.com <laughs> link or like it doesn't show the proper like post preview thing. Oh yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sharing a lot less. We were talking about this just before we started recording or like, you know, is that we're sort of posting, posting a lot, like, uh, or like kind of engaging with this less frequently. And so it's stuff that I don't really notice, but now that I think about it, yes, it is actually, um, it is actually very weird to basically be using like the remnants of two <laughs> or like the remnants of one site and the sort of dysfunctionality of another that also wants to desperately, or that desperately wants your bank details, uh, because it, it it's 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 built yeah. <laughs> it's, it's built to manage your finances and to be an everything app, but it 
doesn't know how to do hyperlinks properly. So uh, things, things, <laughs> things are going well at X. Um, but I want to talk about another tech company that is also seemingly having a good time developing new stuff. Um, this comes from a guy called Ben Shun, who is a senior editor at 9to5Google, um, which is, I okay. guess, I guess it's, it does updates on Google products. But it's not linked to yeah, Google I, in any way. I'm familiar way. with like nine to five Mac or nine to five Apple or whatever right. that one's called. So I guess it's the spinoff. Yeah, or just kind of like filling in the market. Um, so these are the types of sites that kind of like preview new products. Um, so Ben Shun says the Pixel Eight is getting getting what I'm going to call the Michael Scott treatment for photos, with the ability to literally change faces using AI. It looks and in capital letters he says wild. Um, more from the leaked ad here, and it shows this video. The video is of a family at um, at the New York, like you know, oh fuck, what is it called? Eva, the uh, the carousel, like by the Brooklyn Bridge or whatever. And your, oh yeah, yeah. The original photo just sort of shows this normal family who are kind of like the kids aren't really looking at the camera. The wife sort of is, but like it's not a great photo. Um, it's fine. Like, you know, it, it's, it's clearly from a guy who just has not told anyone that he's going to take a photo of them and hasn't timed it properly and <laughs> stuff. Um, Paris, what are your thoughts on this? Are you going to get, are you going to use this to get random people in the street, uh, to smile when, uh, when you're taking creep shots at them? <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, I, like, I have so many thoughts and what we share and like making our memories and, and all those sort of things, like even more fake than they were already like i feel like we've already had this kind of decade of like talking about and being concerned mm. about how instagram is kind of like warping our perceptions of the world because everyone's just kind of trying to post like their best life um and and then everyone sees it and it's like oh man i'm not living a great life like this person even though like they're just kind of curating a certain version of their life for like the rest of the world and now you like expand this and bring in these ai tools these like ai image editing tools and it's like okay so not only are you kind of posing for these particular photos to like make your life look amazing but even if you don't have the perfect photo now you're like editing your face to make it look like everyone was happy around you um and like there's just this level of kind of falsification of like everything that's going on and like a final point it also makes me think of like how disney is increasingly like bringing back these dead actors mm. in like its movies yeah yeah, um, yeah and like yeah. instead of recasting a role like is just creating these these actors out of like cgi or whatever yeah and it's like people look at that and a lot of people see it and think like this really looks like kind of an uncanny valley thing like it doesn't look totally real yeah and it feels like if we like start to turn more and more of our own photos into this kind of like fake AI, you know, whatever edited version of them, then like it, it just kind of mm. further kind of legitimizes this kind of falsification of everything that's happening around us. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just vehemently hate it. Yeah. I mean, there's something like very unsettling sort of watching it. And I think like why these kind of products exist, right? Because I think falsification is a really yeah. interesting element to it. It touches on like the, the the sort of Disney Marvel stuff where they sort of bring back old characters or they sort of use regenerative features. Um, I was watching like a Disney show. I think they did it to like Mark Hamill. It was like a Star Wars spinoff of some kind. And it does look really weird. Yeah. And even if you're sort of like buying the idea, of, oh, yeah, or even if you're sort of accepting of the idea that they're using these types of AI tools and you're kind of good enough or, or you're, you're able to sort of like uh, practice like uh, suspending your belief in order to sort of like go along with the story. Like 
The problem is that this technology doesn't really matter when you're sort of mixing kind of real life actors with these, you know, they're, they're operating at different scales. And so even if you watch like Mandalorian, where you have like the young Luke Skywalker or like Mark, the, 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 the young Luke Skywalker face being mapped onto an actor's body, um, like the rates of like the Luke Skywalker uh, blinks or the way that he speaks is like completely different to the real world actors. And so yeah. like it becomes this really unsettling experience. And in my part where it, like when I sort of watch it, it's very, it then becomes very obvious that like, oh, you're sort of doing like, are you, are you doing this for like fan service? Are you doing this just to sort of prove that you can? I think there is an argument to sort of say that like they probably invested quite heavily into this sort of restorative technology and now they have yeah. to really, so like, and if you flood the market with this type of stuff and it's maybe the mentality is like, well, they're going to have to accept it regardless. Right. Um, so I wonder whether there's a part of that in there, but I think the broader thing that you were talking about, and actually the thing that Ben gets to as well, the idea that like, oh, these types of imaging tools have existed for a long time and no one's ever complained about them, which like, I feel like people have complained about them, um, particularly when it yeah. comes to like, <laughs> I think so too. Well, especially when it comes to sort of like Instagram face uh, type of stuff, you know, image smoothening, uh, the kind of like tools in which uh, models are kind of like Instagram models kind of, you know, uh, develop particular aesthetics that are not kind of in keeping with like the natural evolution of human beings and that having like a real world impact to the extent where like lots of young people go and then get cosmetic surgery to get these features that are by and large kind of created by technology companies um, or at least sort of like instituted by them. You know, there is enough opposition to be like, yeah, the falsification, like this contributes to a wider sense of like present, like falsifying reality but also within i was thinking about this um as i was writing the notes today like it does sort of feel like underpinning it all is this refusal to kind of accept the world for what like to understand the world for what it is um so even if we take the sort of scenario of the google picture like here like the example is very much like this is a guy who took a bad picture and the most obvious solution to be that would be well you're on a carousel so you could wait until the next time they come around and in the time that it takes between point A and point B, you could position yourself a bit better or take a few test shots, like do actual sort of photography, right? This is not going to be the only chance that you're going to have to take this photo. Um, it feels very inhuman, basically. And it feels, to me, I feel like what's worrying about all of this is that it's, a it's an example of how these types of AI tools are basically being sold on the basis that like, look, here is a way in which you can get people who to do like to sort of be present in however way you would like them to be presented as without their consent, without their kind of input. You don't even have to build a relationship with them because so much of like photography is about like building relationships with people or your environment, understanding it. Like so much of like a beautiful photo is not really to do with the people in, it's not, it's not just to do with the people in the photo, but it's about the questions that sort of inform it. And this kind of feels again, like, and you, you touch on this in your article as well, this kind of real reduction of the sort of craft of artistry, even on a basic level to kind of being like, um, this kind of, you know, problem solving exercise, but the kind of most perverse thing about it is that like the problems that these technologies seem to be solving aren't really problems. They are really ways of being like, I don't want to engage with another human being in any way or form. Yeah. And it also makes me think of like, um, I, I don't know if you saw this story recently. I was just just seeing it this morning. Um, but about how like there's this 
kind of Taylor Swift TikTok account. And these fans are like using facial recognition on people and like, I don't know, making these TikToks about them or, or something like that. But like, it just kind of further picks up on the ways that these technologies mm-hmm. are kind of being deployed in the, into the world, used in a very exploitative way mm-hmm. um, and kind of changing our ideas of like what is acceptable or what we should be okay with seeing like out in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think one other thing I want to pick up on based on what you were saying and, and kind of what you described as the reaction to this, but this journalist or reporter or blogger or whatever we want to call him who was writing this article and kind of putting this out onto social media and his response just kind of being like, I don't know why people wouldn't like this. Like, why would you think that this is a bad thing? Mm. Um, and it just shows kind of when it comes to some of this tech journalism that we see or, or tech reporting or whatever, just the way that so many of these people buy into exactly kind of the worldview and the vision that these major tech companies are putting out into the world and are not just like, not interested in the critical perspective, but I find it hard to imagine that anyone would not want the world that these tech companies are building. Mm. Um, And I think that that's a serious problem as well, because, you know, it leads to this kind of broader conversation that I know that you've had on this show and and other shows. um, And that kind of, I think we talk about very often where the tech media has, has also contributed to this problem where these tech companies have um, been able to get away with so much. Um, and I think that we see it once again with these AI conversations um, that, you know, again, a lot of the tech journalism has just been kind of very open to what these companies are pushing on us without really thinking about the broader implications of those things. Yeah. One of the questions I had before we sort of go into your article was also about um, whether whether like tech companies have just kind of run out of ideas of like things they can add on to like their new products. Um, and where, and like what AI kind of like presents to them, like what's their sort of opportunity in this. And it's not to sort of say that like other, you know, up until now, like tech companies have introduced stuff that people have wanted and there's been like a demonstrable demand for them. And now like, you know, we've sort of reached an endpoint, And so everything is kind of just cosmetic. Um, I imagine that point sort of comes like way, way before, but it does seemingly feel a bit more obvious now that like when these types of revelation when it's sort of revealed that like apple or google are sort of releasing a new product there isn't really that sort of sense of excitement over like the things that you can do with it instead it does very much feel like either these are tools that are better at surveilling you or like for either your boss to surveil you or for you to sort of surveil yourself on the basis that everyone kind of knows that they're sort of in the data game now or like it's the case, you know, it, these are tools designed for very specific sets of people in which in this case sort of being AI boosters. And then as a result, like the only people sort of getting excited that they can get like, you know, whatever sort of, you know, whatever person they're making miserable to forcibly smile on a camera are the AI boosters who kind of think that like these technologies sort of exist in order to create a world that they would like to project, right? Um, you know, and you, and you sort of see that, like I've seen that type of sentiment be expressed when people have talked about uh there, there was like a linkedin post that i read a few weeks ago where someone said that they had sort of fired like they no longer sort of contract a photographer to do headshots in their office because now they just sort of get an ai to do it for them which is like not a problem but for them it's like well we were able to kind of like cut back on this and be like you know efficient and all that type of stuff right it does sort of feel like the benefits in this or the benefits of ai tools are always sort of presented as like here is a way that you can get rid of people and get rid of like 
any sort of demand that you have to interact with anyone in the world. And instead, we're going to help you build a world or like help you not even build a world because we're not really doing anything, but we're going to help you. Like we're going to help give you the aesthetics that you need to sort of pr- have the world presented in the way that you believe it ought to be run or should be run or is currently run. Yeah. Like there's so much there, but I would just say, I completely agree with you. Right. Um, like, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, you have the kind of the illusion of eliminating eliminating labor with these AI tools where you just kind of hide away the labor that is taking place. You de-skill it. um, You make sure that you can pay it less and you hide it away in places like Kenya or, um, you know, you look at recent stories that have been done about how an AI company in Finland is using prison labor. Um, And there was another one recently as well. Uh, You know, China is using uh, student interns for its AI tools. Uh, You know, the American companies using Kenyan uh, contract laborers and click workers and things mm. like that. So the the labor is still happening in many ways. Mm. It's just, you know, it's hidden away and it's paid less than it was in the past. And this is a trend that we continue to see again and again with these tech companies. Um, but I think I would also say, I think it's it's fascinating to hear you say that this company got rid of like a photographer to take headshots and used an AI tool because I don't know if you remember the post that was going around like a month or so ago where a woman of color um, uploaded one of her photos to one of these tools and said, can you make a like more professional photo for me? And it just like turned her whiter. Um, <laughs> and it was like, oh yeah, because these like racial biases yeah. are, are built into all these tools, right? And so who is the world that this actually works for if these AI tools are going to be adopted like en masse? Um, yeah. And then to get to your like point on you know, the tech companies running out of ideas, like, you know, as you say, we we saw the announcement or the release of the iPhone 15s recently. And like, what was the big new feature? It was like, you know, a little bit of an improvement to the camera as usual. They added USB-C because the Europeans like mm. forced them to, um, not because the company really wanted to do it. And then they made the bigger phone titanium. And according to like what people are posting, apparently that's made it much easier to scratch and like to to have uh, kind of structural deficiencies. Mm. So we'll see how that continues to play out. But like there's no real big ideas here. Some of the Android companies are rolling out flip smartphones as mm. if that's a real big change and they try to act like it is. But nothing's really going on there, right? And and so I think that when you see these companies embracing AI, and it's not even the first time that we've had this kind of wave of AI boom. We had another one in the 2010s that was supposed to change everything and then didn't. It just degraded labor and stuff, um, as we can get into if you want. Um, but essentially like i what the way i see this ai boom that we've seen recently is not that it's really upending everything and changing everything and like revolutionizing the way the world works and making everything better for everybody what it's really doing is just kind of giving the tech industry another reason to drive a cycle of investment that where these venture capitalists can try to like make some money mm. and these companies can try to expand their power in new ways but it's really not like fundamentally changing very much and i think and, and we can expand on this if you want to, but I think that we already see this period of AI boom, like already kind of slowing and the energy coming out of it. There are multiple indicators of that. Um, and so, you know, I think that we're already seeing this is just another boom and bust cycle that doesn't deliver very much other than pain and misery and harm for workers. Mm. I think like you, so you touch on this in your article that you write, uh, that you've written, which I think is like a good insight into like the broader trends that are kind of happening at the moment, um, 
And I wondered, so this is, so this article uh, that you wrote, which is for Disconnect, you wrote, generative AI closes off a better future. Ursula Le Guin said, we must be able to imagine freedom. AI traps us in the past. Um, for people who haven't read the article, which will be linked in the show notes, can you tell us like what kind of, yeah, what, what are the things that would drive, what drove you to sort of wrote to write this piece? Um, where does Le Guin fit into this, especially for like people, including myself who have not really read much of, much of their work and, uh, why kind of particularly, why is like Le Guin's words, like particularly potent at this moment of time? Yeah. So I, I've been writing a lot about, um, AI recently and, you know, obviously following it because it's the most recent kind of trend that is going on. Um, and I was going over some, some notes that I had, like while I was on a flight because, you know, I wasn't connected to the internet. So I was just kind of like, uh, you know, uh, doing some admin work and stuff like that while I was on the airplane. Um, and, and I came across this quote that I had saved from Le Guin that was from a speech that I, that I quote in, um, in the article where she essentially says that like, we need artists who can imagine freedom, right. And, and who can kind of keep that in mind and kind of inspire us to be able to, you know, think towards something better. And Le Guin is, uh, you know, she's most known for being a science fiction writer, but she's written mm. kind of just generally in fiction and nonfiction. She's, she died a few years ago, unfortunately. Um, but for me, like her, I found her fiction and her work very kind of eye-opening in illustrating how different kind of social models can work. Like if people want to check out some of her work, I'd highly recommend um, The Dispossessed, which is one of my favorite novels that she wrote. Um, but so, you know, I, I kind of saw that quote again and I went back and listened to the speech that she gave um, where that quote was from. And it, and it just so kind of tied up I think everything that we've been talking about around AI recently, right? Mm -hmm. About how, you know, these AI tools, they they don't think for themselves. They don't create anything new. They're just kind of learning and, and pulling from existing data sets. So they're just recycling what already exists. Mm -hmm. And then we also see these artists, you know, continually speaking out against these AI tools in the sense of how it kind of degrades their labor and, and is, you know, used by corporations to try to attack what they are doing, you know, both in the sense of like the writers and actors strikes that we've been seeing recently, but also just, you know, people more broadly, like I talked to Molly Crabapple, who is an illustrator in New York, um, you know, a month or two ago. Um, and there are authors who've been suing OpenAI. There are artists who've been suing OpenAI, like all different kinds of, you know, kind of creative work um, that has been stolen by these companies to inform these models that they're using. Um, and ultimately, like, what is the world that that delivers to us? They say that, you know, it will allow you, if we're thinking solely in kind of the artistic sphere, it will allow you to create all this kind of personalized art and, and all this kind of stuff that uh, directly kind of um, fits toward the things that you are interested in. But really, it's just stealing from these artists who have already mm. created all this work, you know, kind of making plagiarized versions of what they've done and slightly kind of uh, changed versions of what they've done, but it's really inherently not creating anything new. And if we think about what we value as a species and like, you know, what is important to kind of our kind of collective and cultural identity, is it just kind of having these tech tools that churn out bullshit or is it having like a really strong artistic sector that, you know, can, can kind of 
look at what is happening in the world, can kind of refer back to artists' own kind of personal experiences living in this world and create something new that speaks to the rest of us through that. Like, I just think that there's such a fundamental divide between what real artists, what human artists do and what these tech tools do. And the kind of tech companies have tried to make it seem like they are one and the same. And that is absolutely not the case. And so when I saw this kind of Le Guin quote and went mm -hmm. back to the speech where she talks about needing artists who can imagine freedom, I thought that, that that's just so kind of encapsulated the core of the problem that we're dealing with. And so mm -hmm. that's why I wrote this piece. Mm. Um I was interested in uh, thinking about this in relation to some news over the weekend about the NFT markets going to zero, uh, which is to say <laughs> that apparently the NFTs aren't worth anything. Uh, surprise, surprise! I'm shocked. Uh, I, I am, I am, <laughs> I am shocked. Uh, I am very sad. All my ape juice, all, all, all the ape juice is gone from a 10k post studio. Uh, if, uh, and it was all worth nothing anyway, but I remember when the NFT stuff was happening, there were some conversations about how the NFTs were going to save the art world, right? That like art was, and I think yeah. it sort of touches on some of the things that you were just saying about how, you know, uh, art was kind of being misappropriated. It was kind of being stolen. It was kind of being taken up by Google, like Google, Google algorithms, uh, was kind of pointed out. And so the NFTs were supposed to be a way of kind of protecting artists. And there was lots of hype about it, like reviving art and giving artists like ways of making kind of, you know, money and all that type of stuff. Now, obviously the market has collapsed. Um, but the thing that I remember from the NFTs discourse was also the ways that it all, you know, it, but it, you know, it, it also threatened like people who kind of create, it was like, it threatened creators, it threatened people who like made stuff um, because it kind of fit into that broader uh, trend of like tech kind of getting to determine what is valuable and what isn't and everything sort of having, having to be kind of put through, uh, the lens of technology, having to sort of be understood by, uh, these kind of like tech, like these technological systems that didn't really, really make sense even to people who created them, but exist. And therefore you have to kind of engage with them. Um, I wondered, so I had the two questions first was like, I like how much do you think, um, AI and generative AI um, is responsible, like how much of that is like related to the collapse of the NFT market? Is this really the case of like tech guys desperately looking for like a way to make money, thinking that NFTs may have been the answer now looking at AI, which is like not quite the same, but kind of believing that, okay, it's better to like, we can just make more money exploiting people this way. So how much of that is just to kind of do with like the jump? And then the second part is how, how much have things actually really changed? Like is generative AI or AI tools just more broadly, like more of a threat to NFTs? Because I guess I was sort of thinking about for like all the faults of NFTs, at least there's kind of, you know, among sort of its evangelists, there is an argument to sort of be said about maybe you need like a new mechanism in order to kind of give artists more control over their work. And from the way that I understand with AI, with the, you know, with AI and the sort of AI uh, uh, boosters, they're sort of now saying, like, they're not really interested in even pretending they're interested in that anymore. For them, it's very much like, no, these tools exist to like basically exploit and extract and you've just got to get used to it. Yeah, I think it's a really good question, right? And I think, you know, if we think back to NFTs and like how that whole um, system worked, like we can see that it was really based on a lot of very kind of basic derivative 
you know, people would say art, but like, you know, kind of graphics that in many cases, these um, people selling the NFTs were like going on Fiverr and getting people to just kind of churn out. Right. Mm. So I think that you can see that theoretically, like generative AI and these generative AI tools would be aligned quite well, I think, with NFTs and with the way that that market actually worked in reality. Um, And so I think that that speaks to a bigger kind of, you know, overarching theme, I think, where you just see that the tech industry is constantly jumping from hype bubble to hype bubble, kind of boosting up some technology because it looks like, you know, the VCs and like some founders and stuff can make some money off of it until it crashes once again. Um, And so I think that that is really what we saw with the, the NFT craze you know it was really popular during this particular moment during the pandemic um and people kind of funneled money into it and it was easy for the venture capitalists to like fund these projects that had nothing behind them and get some quick returns um Mm. while things were locked down and things were not moving so much and and whatever and then once that kind of period ends and we see the crypto uh boom starting to go bust by November of 2021. And that really happens through 2022. And then we not only have the implosion of the crypto bubble and, you know, the kind of metaverse, whatever hype there was around that is clearly, you know, kind of falling apart and never really taking off. And then at the same time, you have interest rates that are rising. Mm. Um, and so the entire kind of model of the tech industry for the past like 15 years is really being you know, kind of thrown um, into disarray in that moment. And so you need something else to kind of drive investment and hype and excitement to keep things going so that it doesn't implode. And I think that is where, why like uh, OpenAI and, and these tools were really well positioned in that moment to be the driver of the new hype bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's not much real connection between the implosion of NFTs and like the rise of AI other than, you know, it's just different hype bubbles and the the industry constantly needs to jump onto something new. And these were just the technologies that were kind of ready and, and like ready to go and ready for a wave of investment at the moment that those things happened, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if they were really technologies that were useful in any sense, you could see how there would be kind of alignments between them and they could help one mm-hmm. another. And and that's not to say that I think that there's kind of more to the AI bubble than there was with the crypto stuff. Like there's some of these tools yeah. that I think will stick around um, more so than, than with crypto. But I think that when we think about it through the lens of creativity as well, like I think one of the things that is really important to consider is like the difference between use and exchange value, right? Um, and I think that when we think about art, it's it's easy to think about it through the lens of use value, right? Because we get to experience this art and, you know, it can mean a lot to us, but it can be more difficult to figure out what the exchange value of this art is actually going to be. And so there are always corporations that are trying to figure out how they can best quantify um, art and how they can make money Mm -hmm. off of it. But there's a lot of art where that just never really makes sense, right? And and it's just difficult to commercialize it in a way that, you know, our kind of capitalist system would expect. Um, And so I think that once again, like what we see with generative AI, is just another way to kind of quantify and commercialize um, artistic, you know, practice, um, and and really to make it work for 
a certain number of corporations, not for artists themselves. Mm -hmm. So you see like, you know, the movie companies thinking, okay, you know, how can we use visual effects tools to create actors that we can just kind of, uh, you know, kind of puppet the way that we want them to work? Or these companies saying, maybe there's a way we can use generative AI tools to churn out scripts, you know, based on existing uh, things that we already have here for these kind of cheap series that we need to keep pumping out to feed, you know, our, our streaming services. But then, you know, beyond that, you see these companies who are like, you know, you don't need to hire an artist now. You can just churn out all this bullshit from Dolly or Stable Diffusion or whatever. Um, and then we can have all of this art and all of this writing and we can keep kind of increasing the quantity that is out there. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully there's some business model that's going to come along with it yeah. uh, because, you know, having to hire an individual artist is never really, um, you know, useful or economical or, or makes sense for their kind of business models because there's too yeah. much labor that needs to go into creating that. Um, and, and that's a bit distinct from like, you know, kind of the, the high end art market where things are going for crazy amounts of money and they're yeah. really just stores of rich people's value. You know, those, those are distinct things. Yeah. And I was like, I, I think this is an episode for art, unfortunately, but I think it, it was, it was an interesting thing you brought up. Um, not least because like, I think with the NFT discourse, uh, or the, you know, the sort of like optimistic conversations about NFTs, it was really the idea that like you could sort of marry this kind of blockchain technology to high-end art and you could sort of create something kind of new or kind of hybrid. And obviously a lot of that was bullshit. A lot of it was, you know, most of it was like entirely based on speculation. I'm really interested in like what artists have really gotten fucked over as like a result of that. Uh, maybe something about, maybe something for another yeah. episode. But it does sort of feel that with generative AI- I think I would also say there- it's not just it was not just like kind of linking blockchain to like the high-end art market but also saying to more artists who were not in the high-end art market mm -hmm. that it's going to turn like all of the art that you do into this really kind of much more valuable thing and you know it's going to create this market for art that doesn't really exist yeah, at the exactly, moment yeah. beyond this high-end level yeah. and that never really worked out right yeah because like there's someone there's a couple of people i know who were like kind of transition to sort of doing like lots of NF, like focusing a lot on like NFT pieces. And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious about like whether they had sold anything or like how that kind of worked. I didn't, the impression I got was that they were not entirely convinced or at least they weren't, they didn't sort of buy into the hype, but it was much more of a kind of cultural condition that was also rooted in anxiety yeah. of like media industries that we're more familiar with when it comes to like, Oh, this is being presented as like the inevitable next step. And if you don't kind of follow it, then you're sort of being, you know, it's, it's that very kind of classic, but reaffirmed, like, you know, have fun staying poor sort of thing. But in industries that like are kind of constantly <laughs> cash strapped, like the thing that is very evident is that it is incredibly easy for tech companies to spook them into sort of thinking that if you don't get on board with this, then like you're going to be left behind, right? And you're going to lose out and you're going to lose all this money, but also like a lot of people are going to like lose their jobs and stuff. Um, and that sort of brings me on to like starting to think about it in terms of um, a content generator. And I suppose like the question, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you was like a very, very basic question actually, which was like, what do we mean when we talk about generative AI? Um, because I feel like of all the AI tools that are being used and AI kind of being used in this term, like as a ubiquitous term, almost deliberately as a way of kind of being like, you know, this is an AI revolution. And as you mentioned, like some things will probably likely stay, but a lot of things that may be being hyped up right now might be 
kind of seen as fads. I think generative AI definitely sort of more exists in the latter side. But I wondered what your thoughts were on like, how would you kind of describe generative AI? And why is it generative AI that is kind of the threat to creativity and art, uh, at least like the way that you sort of understand it in the article? Yeah. So I, I guess I would say, and, and to be clear, I'm not like a technical expert necessarily, but I think how I would explain it for people to understand is that generative AI tools are basically kind of building on work that has been done over previous you know, years, decades, um, and what has allowed it to kind of reach this level where it can perform more tasks and seem more quote unquote intelligent um, than can the kind of previous iterations of this technology is just that it's trained on absolutely massive um, databases of, of like data that has been largely scraped off of the web, off of the open web. And it doesn't matter if that was copyrighted material. It doesn't matter if it was books that people owned, art that people created. It was all kind of brought into this, this model, right? Mm. Um, and it's taking advantage of the fact that there is a lot of centralized computing power um, owned by companies like Microsoft, Google, mm. Amazon, that allows these models um, to use kind of all of that power and use all of that data to find um, what similarities, find patterns within all of that data so that now when you prompt it, because it has this massive database, because it has all this computing power behind it, um, it can churn out things that previous models and previous tools were not able to do because they didn't have the degree of power that these tools had. Mm. Um, and as a result, it makes those tools um, very energy intensive um, and very expensive to run, uh, which is something we don't see in the coverage very much. Like, you know, if you're if you're kind of replacing a search engine with the chatbot, um, it's actually quite it's quite a bit more expensive for the company that's mm. running it. And I think that's part of the reasons why we've actually seen Google only roll out kind of limited um, generative AI kind of integration in its Google search engine so far. Um, because I think that a lot of that was really driven by hype. And we've seen that, you know, one of the early narratives when uh, Microsoft made its deal with OpenAI was that Bing was kind of kind of like eat Google's lunch because it had all these kind of capabilities that that Google search engine um, didn't have at the time. And actually we see that it hasn't made any real difference, um, mm. at all because, you know, it was just a gimmick. Right. Mm. Um, and so I think that that is kind of the best way to think about it. Like if I were to put it in real layman's terms, like think of the autocorrect on your phone, mm. it's kind of like that, but it's just much more powerful. It can spit out more than mm. things previously could do. And obviously it can spit out text. It can spit out um, you know, images, uh, they're working on kind of video tools that can do this kind of stuff as well. But ultimately, these tools don't know fact from fiction. They don't understand anything. They're just responding to prompts that they're given and mm. churning out information or, or, you know, content or data or whatever based on that. Um, and so what you often find with kind of the text that's spit out by ChatGPT and whatnot is that, sure, it might be coherent, because it is pulling from these kind of vast databases of text, um, but it's often complete bullshit and makes things up all the time because it doesn't know reality. It's not actually intelligent. Um, you know, it's it's just kind of taking all this data that it has, reconfiguring it in in a different way, and throwing it out at you. Um, and so that is why I think it's kind of correct to call these things often 
plagiarism tools because that's all it's doing. It's taking from work that's already been done and then kind of rearranging it in different ways. It's not creating anything new or novel. And I think that's really important to understand. Mm. And I guess like the secondary question then is like, what are the sort of broader consequences of that? We sort of touched on it a little bit, uh, but it might say so like a recent sort of anecdotal example uh, it was a friend of mine who works for a British politician and part of her job is to be a speechwriter for this politician. Um, and uh, in kind of recent weeks, the, speech, the, the MP has kind of been using uh, generated software to write his speeches um, and therefore they're sort of making part of her job redundant. Now, like she still has a job and like, you know, didn't get like kind of sacked or a pay cut or anything. But to me, it's sort of that kind of broaden that sort of presents like a democratic threat as well, right? Because it's very much so like the AI sort of works as far as I'm aware by using some of his speeches, which are recorded in Hansard, which is like the kind of main record of parliament that is kind of publicly accessible and generate speeches uh, that he would then give in parliament uh, or in like committees and stuff using existing speeches that he has. So the idea is basically this kind of, you know, that he feels that this software is able to sort of speak in his voice. But in my mind, like this feels quite dangerous, like on a democratic level, only to the extent that like when, especially if you're like a representative, if, if you're like representing groups of people um, in government and, you know, the, the sort of the relationship you have as an elected official is def is one of like, you know, about fundamentally about human relationships is about people putting their trust in you and you being able to articulate their needs uh, and the community's needs as someone who exists in that society. And it sort of feels like this is actually a really interesting and but also damning insight into what chat, chat GPT and these other types of generative like um, AI uh, software like what their actual purpose is, it kind of goes back to what we were saying right at the top, which is that they exist to like almost remove the necessity of having to engage with people in the real world. And especially people who need you, people who are like dependent on you, the recognition of like relationships of power as well. Like, you know, if you're a constituent, you go to your MP because like you need help and like you've exhausted all the other resources and your MP then needs to go to his seniors um, and the broader government to be like, look, you know, my community like needs better, like, you know, roads or needs better, like water supplies and stuff like that. And so one thing I was interested in was just like how much this actually rep, like what are the consequences of the usage of this software on like a societal level? Are we going to be seeing like a lot of examples where this type of software is being used to kind of remove the need to sort of communicate with people who are less fortunate, less privileged. And as a result, kind of like in like contributing to creating a world that really is only suitable for people who like are in a position to use the software to their advantage. Because then I guess like the secondary element to this is also what is this generative, like what are these generative tools actually there for? We've talked a little bit about racial bias, but like the broader thing in map is that like the, the types of like language models that it's trained on are ones that kind of suit particular classes and like suit people who have money and like also more broadly like they suit the needs of westerners as well like it's no uh surprise that like the people who are training other types of ai tools live in the global south and they are building tools for people who live in the global north so it feels like those two things are kind of collided and i guess i wondered what your thoughts were on like what how what do you see the broader consequences being 
on a social level, political level, and so on. Yeah, I, I think it's a real threat. And I think that one of the problems is that we often don't think about these bigger questions when these things arise, right? Um, and and they're often very important to actually understand the understanding the real potential impacts of these things. Um, and so, you know, I think based on what you were saying, like there are a couple trends that I often point to, to what the tech industry has been doing with the rollout of digital technologies that, you know, they won't say in their marketing, but you can very clearly see with um, the way that these things have been kind of developing. And that's obviously, you know, attacking labor and de-skilling labor and trying to make sure that um, you're kind of hiding labor away and paying it less and all these sorts of things. And then along with that is kind of, you know, increasing this sort of kind of social divide that exists where you're basically like if we look at a lot of these uh, kind of technologies and companies that have gained a lot of prominence in recent years, um, it's kind of like a key part of their business model is to keep us at home or at work and kind of separated from other people so that Mm -hmm. we use technologies to mediate uh, like we use these companies like Amazon or Uber or whatever to kind of mediate our relationships with the rest of the world, because unless we do that, they are not making profits. Right. And we saw that in particular during the pandemic when uh, we were all kind of forced to or most of us were forced to stay home um, to avoid spreading the virus. Uh, all of a sudden, the profits of all these companies and the revenue of these companies went through the roof. Right. Because that was great for their business mm-hmm. models that we couldn't see people directly and had to use their technologies in order to buy things, in order to talk to people, in order to consume media and entertainment to a greater degree than we already did before then, right? Um, And so I think that what you see with generative AI is the continuation of those sorts of things, right? Where, as you say, the people who are going to benefit from these technologies are, you know, particularly kind of mainly kind of upper class people, Mm. uh, you know, you could say people who like control the means of production or like, you know, are, are, have a particular kind of place within the economic hierarchy where they can uh, take advantage of what these tools offer while the people who train the tools and the people who, Mm. you know, make the written work and the artistic work that goes into Mm. actually training um, the generative AI tools are really going to get shafted by this, right? Mm. Um, And are not going to really see the benefits of it, but are rather again, going to be paid less, going to be de-skilled and all these sorts of things. Um, and then I think the, the the other thing I would point to is that like this is not the first AI boom that we've even seen like in this kind of cycle, right? Mm. In the mid-2010s, we had another AI and robot boom. People will remember all the talk of like robots taking our jobs. But the idea then was that, you know, self-driving cars were going to be a thing and they were going to eliminate all the taxi jobs and truck driver jobs in just a few years. And, you know, service jobs were at risk of automation and like all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And none of it actually happened, right? What we had instead was these technologies being rolled out in such a way that you know, workers were turned into contractors or they were paid less because of the threat of automation. Um, and their their work was de-skilled because there was an increase of surveillance in their workplaces yeah. made possible by digital technologies. Um, and so you had this real degradation in kind of the lives that many people live, the work that many people do, while this kind of tech elite and this particular class of workers was made better off by this. Um, and, you know, back in 2015, Lauren Smiley wrote this essay about the shut-in economy picking up on these trends, basically explaining how we have how how these technologies and Silicon Valley is creating this world where we have this much more kind of solid, um, 
you know, kind of uh, kind of distinction between the class of the served and the the kind of serpents, right? Based on these kind of this kind of technological mediation. And so I think that when you see generative AI rolling out, the threat is not like artificial general intelligence and the idea that mm. uh, you know we're going to have these super intelligent machines that are a threat to humanity as a whole, but rather these companies and these executives at these companies continuing to develop and roll out technologies that are harmful to the rest of us, um, whether that's in, the, in terms of our work, whether that has democratic implications, like we've seen um, AI tools already being rolled out in Kind of immigration systems and welfare systems in such a way that they really disadvantage, um, you know, poor people, people in the global south, people on welfare, all these, you know, the most vulnerable people in our societies and in our world um, are, you know, disadvantaged by the rollout of these technologies. And we see that again and again. Um, and I would just say, if people want to know more on this, um, Dan McQuillan has a fantastic book called Resisting AI that I think explores this really well. Uh, I'm conscious about the time, but there were two things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, and actually, this is in relation to uh, some recent news about the WGA and the sort of recent uh, potential mm. solution that they may have come up with, which includes like a series of like AI protections. One of the reasons why the strikes were taking place was because of the broader threat um, of the very real threat of studios uh, using uh, the threat of generative AI. Uh, being able to, you know, basically saying that, you know, we can get these tools to write kind of shitty Disney shows for us. And so we don't really need you anyway. Uh, it now sort of seems to be the case that like, if the WGA um, are able to win, uh, they will have like substantive protections against AI. Uh, I haven't read like the full details of this just yet, but the impression that I kind of get might be that there is a recognition maybe from these big studios that they might not be able to rely on this type of software in the way that they have been or in the way that they maybe had anticipated. And it sort of made me think about other media companies who have used AI tools as well. Um, so for example, uh, uh, BuzzFeed, uh, they laid off their staff last year. And one of the kind of things that Jonah Peretti had said was that we that he wanted to use generative AI tools uh, alongside kind of a small team of reporters to basically produce more stories. They have been doing that. I don't know whether like you, well, I don't know how much BuzzFeed stuff you read, Paris, but uh, it shows up on my Instagram very often and they are filled with typos and errors and problems and also just like a real lack of engagement as well. So the strategy of like kind of using generative AI to flood social channels to kind of stay relevant. You know, you touch on this on your essay as well, where you sort of say that artists and art and creativity is not going to like die because of AI. Um, but what really is going to happen is, I'll read this out actually. You say AI tools will not eliminate human artists regardless of, uh, of what corporate executives might hope, but it will allow companies to churn out passable uh, to serve up audiences at a lower cost. And in that way, it allows further de-skilling of art and devaluing of artists because instead of needing a human at the center of the creative process, companies can try to get computers to churn out something good enough uh, and then bring it in with no human creative control uh, and lower fee to fix it up. Um, and I wondered whether what your thoughts were on the kind of result or what seems to be the result of the strike right now and whether there has sort of been not necessarily a rethink of using AI tools but rather maybe the arrogance that initially was there in terms of we can replace human beings with these types of systems, or we can sort of make human beings less important in the creation of uh, creative output. Like have these strikes kind of 
uh, presented studios, studio executives and like media head CEOs and everything with like the reality that you can't actually do stuff or you can't actually do this stuff without humans being at the center of it. Like what, what, what do you kind of think are, might be the effects of the WGA kind of being able to, uh, yeah, kind of being able to not only hold out the strike for this long, but also um, be able to kind of assert their own importance compared to AI tools right now. Yeah, I, I think that the fact that they have this deal now, and you know, to be clear, we don't have the full terms of the deal, or at least you know, I hadn't seen them before we started recording, um, because the lawyers are still kind of you know, kind of dotting the I's and crossing the T's and all that kind of stuff on it. Um, and then it'll be presented to the membership for them to ratify it to see if they're going to accept the deal. But clearly, since they were out for, I believe it was 146 days, the strike lasted, they were able to get a much better deal than um, the studios were initially presenting them with when negotiating was mm. going on and before the strike actually started, right? Um, I, I think that what we're likely to see um, is that the use of these technologies has not been fully ruled out, but there has been some compromises made on um, the way that they can potentially be used in future. Because the thing that the studios really wanted was not to really like rule out their ability to potentially use AI in the future, because they recognize that it's not at the point where it can kind of take everything over right now. Um, but they wanted to make sure that if it did reach the point where it could potentially replace workers in the future, um, they were not going to be restricted from being able to mm. do that. And so we need to see what exactly the language they agreed to was on on how this is going to be used. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think that still remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, you know, I think that there was this notion kind of earlier this year as we were really in kind of the peak of, the AI kind of boom and hype cycle that these technologies were kind of so intelligent and so good at writing and they could kind of do whatever and they could replace human workers. Um, and we know that that was never the case, right? Like once again, what companies were trying to do was roll out these technologies as you were talking about Jonah Peretti doing um, at BuzzFeed where, you know, you roll out the technologies, they produce kind of some shitty uh, you know, written work, and then you bring in a writer or or an editor to fix it up, so that you have less kind of human labor in the creation of that piece of work. And sure, the quality is degraded. Sure, it's not as good as something that would have been done if you had just allowed a human to like write an article. But the idea is that it's cheaper to produce. You can produce more, and because of the way that the internet works and has kind of been structured to work. You need to constantly have new stuff coming out to kind of keep that engagement going. You need to have the content farm going. Um, and even in kind of the media industry, the streaming services have created that to a certain degree where, you know, Netflix is very open about the fact that it feels it needs to have like a new show or a new movie like every week so that you keep your subscription um, you know, to the service uh, instead of canceling and kind of going and watching something somewhere else, especially at a moment where they're cracking down on password sharing and they're all raising prices and all this kind of stuff, right? Kind of the benefit and usefulness of the service has really been significantly reduced uh, based on the promises that were made to us. And so I think that, again, kind of going back to something that I was saying before, 
it really shows the division between like, you know, the kind of culture and the kind of art that really enriches us as humans. And then, you know, the kind of kind of cultural output that can be commercialized and that works for these corporations. And those are not uh, the same thing. And that over time, as, you know, more and more of our lives and more and more of our society has had to be kind of consumed and brought into the capitalist system and kind of churning out mm. kind of profit and contributing to GDP and all this kind of stuff, we have seen kind of a further erosion of art, you know, real art that kind of speaks to us and replacing that with, um, you know, kind of creative works that uh, work for kind of large consolidated corporate entities that want to profit off of, um, you know, art and everything that that is going on, right? To make sure that creativity is is an industry and not just something that kind of humans do to kind of enrich ourselves and enrich our lives and and kind of have a better kind of understanding of what it means to be human and and you know kind of what it means to kind of live on this this planet and whatnot. Um, I feel like it's it's getting like a little ethereal as I start to say those things, <laughs> but like I think it's harder to quantify like what that kind of art is versus this stuff that needs to be quantified and commercialized so that it serves the bottom lines of major corporations. And I think that that is a true divide that we're seeing, whether it's in kind of movies and TV or just kind of in journalism where, um, you know, there was this idea in the past, I think that journalism didn't need to make money and that we were going to fund public broadcasters so that they could, uh, you know, make this kind of stuff, even if we, we knew that journalism was not profitable because mm -hmm. uh, we understood that it was essential for like democracy and for our understanding of the world around us. Mm -hmm. um, but again, kind of capitalism has degraded everything because everything has to turn has to turn a profit now. Um, and that just leaves our whole society kind of worse off and leaves us open to the ways that tools like generative AI further degrade kind of everything yeah. around us. I think, and there was like one other point that I wanted to make, which, cause I think it's like one of the most like really interesting and powerful things in your essay, which is really goes back to sort of what is the purpose of art and creativity um, and it kind of being a way of like imagining different futures and the idea that if you are going to imagine like better futures and like critically ones that are centered around human beings, then you kind of need the human sort of making that art. Right. And the problem with generative AI is not just that it kind of reproduces, um, vacuous material that doesn't really have that human centeredness and is able to do so at a rate that kind of justifies its uh monetary cost to like to like your you know your buzzfeeds and so on it's also this inherent idea that in doing so it restricts us from kind of imagining what a better future can be right because if that sort of if the generative ai kind of becomes or informs the broader aesthetic of which like other types of digital create or other types of creativity can be expressed on the internet which like you know like it or not does sort of remain one of the very few public like public arenas that we have left but if it is able to then if it if generative ai then ends up dominating that aesthetic then there is you know it, and it, and this goes beyond like a democratic crisis it goes into like a crisis of imagination like ultimately you know the one of the issues with generative ai as far as um Le Guin's kind of sort of getting at but also what you're getting at uh is that it restricts us from actually imagining and working towards a better future regardless like it keeps us restricted it keeps us like constrained and it kind of means that 
if we're thinking about stuff like nostalgia bubbles, or if we're thinking about like why kind of trends kind of keep um, being cycled and recycled, it all kind of feeds back into the effects of generative content. And maybe what we're seeing right now is just the effects of what happens when you have generative content, something that has been around like for a good part of a decade at this point, but what happens if the, the rate of generation gets faster and faster. And as a result, like we kind of continually have to live inside these cycles. And I'm just wondering whether that was kind of what you were getting at towards like the end of the essay or whether you had any thoughts really on that as like an idea and what kind of threats generative AI has on like the ability to create new things. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really important point. Um, and I think that it really does show that continued tension between art for kind of the sake of profit and, and commercialization and art for the sake of human beings and like what it means to live in this world and what a better world could look like. And one of the things that I found most, um, you know, one of the things that drew me most to the work of Ursula Le Guin was how sh her work was very focused on kind of getting us to imagine different worlds and different ways of organizing society and was very kind of effective in doing that, right? Like it worked really well to kind of open your mind to other ways that things could work. Mm. Um, and I think that that is so important. And I think that that is something that generative AI and these kind of tools cannot offer us because as I said earlier, you know, they are trained on these massive databases of kind of work that already exists. And all that they're doing is taking that work that already exists and churning out something new based on it. Or, you know, they're, they're churning up some kind of mashup of all of that stuff that they have based on the prompt that you're giving them and the patterns that they have found in all mm -hmm. that data. They're never creating anything new. They're never imagining anything new. That is something that humans do um, with our kind of, you know, experience of the world, with our kind of observations of what's going on and our ability, hopefully, to imagine something different. Um, no generative AI tool can do that. And, you know, artificial general intelligence is not happening anytime soon. This idea that computers are going to be able to think for themselves and all that kind of stuff. That's like religious, that's like techno religious bullshit, <laughs> I think. Um, and, and so I think I would just say, I, I think I would like to just kind of read that small piece from Le Guin's essay to kind of really hammer home kind of what she was saying and, and talking about um, back in 2014 when she gave this, um, you know, this speech. Um, and also, I think it will be clear how it relates to everything that we've been talking to. And, and so she said, hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. We'll need writers who can imagine freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality. Like, I, I think that that's just so essential, right? When we think about the world that we are in today, when we think about the kind of many crises that we're facing from the climate crisis to like the cost of living to the poverty and inequality that exists in our societies. ChatGPT and the tech industry are not going to solve any of those things, right? Um, the only way that we're going to do that is by fighting for a better future. And we need to be able to imagine that better future as well. And I think that is an important place where art comes in to, you know, help us to do that, um, but also to show us that that is indeed possible. And so I think that that is kind of what I was trying to get at with this essay and to really point to like one of the fundamental deficiencies 
with all this hype around AI and this notion mm -hmm. that it's like going to be this revolutionary thing when actually, like many of these technologies rolled out by the capitalist industry in Silicon Valley, is just further trapping us into the society that exists and further degrading kind of everything going on around us. Mm. I think that's probably a good place to end it. Uh, we will link Paris's essay into the show notes. Uh, do give it a read if you haven't already. Paris, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, if people want to read your work and follow your stuff, how can they do that? Absolutely. It's it's always great to speak with you. Um, you know, there's a ton of social media platforms. I'm usually at Paris Marks on them if you want to find me. Um, you know, I, I host a podcast called Tech Won't Save Us. I have a newsletter called Disconnect, which you can find in the, the link to that article. Yeah, uh, those are the main things, I think. Cool. Well, we'll link as much as we can into those show notes. Do check all of them out if you can't already. Uh, thank you for subscribing to this episode. We really appreciate it. All your support helps us to run the show without ads. It helps us to make the editorial independent. It means that we also don't have to use a generative AI to make content. Uh, which is which is uh, which is very good, at least for now. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know where to uh, read Phoebe's stuff. Uh, that'll be linked as well. The show is produced by Devon. Follow them at Devon underscore on Earth if you don't already. Listen to Kill James Bond if you don't already. Um, and I think that's it. So until next time, I'll catch you later. Bye.